After a long-awaited return, we're back and we're savvier than ever, ready to grace your ears with another season of The Specialist. That's right, welcome back for season two. Or for those of you yet to tune into season one, let me formally introduce myself. I'm Rob Barnard and in this podcast series we'll be talking to mortgage industry thought leaders who aren't afraid to address pressing issues happening in the here and now. Over the course of season two, we'll once again be exploring real-world affairs that are in desperate need of bold new ideas and expertise. Ideas that just cut through the financial jargon and offer real-world solutions for everyday people in the mortgage industry. That's specialist ideas from an entirely new set of specialist experts for you to tune into at home or on the go. Hello and welcome to The Specialist. I'm your host, Rob Barnard. And in this episode, I'll be talking with none other than Lawrence Morey, Pepper Money's chief executive, and even more daunting for me, my big boss. So I hope this goes well, or it could be a very public example of career abseiling. Over the last few months, there's been lots of doom and gloom around in respect of the economy as a whole, but there are now undoubtedly one or two green shoots of optimism beginning to appear. So I'm looking forward to discussing these with Lawrence, looking at the current challenges of Pepper being a non-bank funded lender and how this compares with the funding models available to those lenders that are owned by or indeed funded by banks. I'm also going to be asking Lawrence what keeps him awake at night, how he switches off from his life at the top of a large specialist lender and how he sees the market moving and changing in the months and years ahead. So just before we get into the nitty gritty of the current economic situation and the challenges that obviously throws up with regards to funding, etc., I'm really intrigued to get to know a little bit more about you. How does a man from South Africa, who started, if my research is correct, who started work with Ernst & Young, how have you ended up coming to run one of the UK's largest specialist lenders? It's a, it's a story of being in the right place at the right time <laughs> to some, in some regard, Rob. Um, my sort of background prior to Ernst & Young actually starts in South Africa when I was a bank teller. So when I left high school, I, uh, I worked in, in the local First National Bank, which is the equivalent of Barclays now, I guess and uh, sort of did my studies at night. So, you know, spent three years working in a retail banking environment, got the sense of sort of, you know, the, the frankly, the, the good work that businesses like that can do. You know, saw at the sharp end customers struggling and saw how the bank was able to, you know, move to help them. It was a very different model to what we operate in the UK, but I think gave me a real sense of, frankly, how an organization can mobilize itself to help its staff. I was always on the path to becoming a chartered accountant, which is why I ended up at Nurse & Young, uh, and then came across to the UK. Uh, not so much leaving South Africa. Uh, I did something that most other Antipodeans do, which is just left the country uh, for a, a working holiday and just never went back. Um, landed a fantastic role with a, a Japanese bank. Um, and in that space, uh, a private equity firm, I became exposed to uh, non-bank financial services. So I worked really well with a guy called Mark Clark. Um, and he and I sort of bought and sold Mortgages PLC, um, which was one of the first uh, sort of major non-banks. Uh, and really, the story started there. Um, sort of got an understanding of those models, uh, had a really good understanding of, of how they're funded, um, and moved forward with uh, with a whole range of other non-banks into the, into the teeth of the first crisis in 2008. I think the basis for me being at Pepper for so long uh, has been linked to the people I work with, both with respect to my global colleagues, uh, but as importantly, frankly, our colleagues here in the UK. I really like the people we work with. They're good, honest, hardworking people who are prepared to put themselves out there. I can't see myself working in an environment other than Pepper 
given the nature of the people who work here. Yeah, that's brilliant. I've wondered about how to start this, and I've got to be honest. You know what? We must have been bad in a previous life. Because <laughs> if, if you look at a typical mortgage professional through, through time, they probably have one event in their working career that throws them hardship. If you look back over the last 15 years, started in 2008, we've had the global financial crisis, which decimated a number of brokers and sadly saw many lenders go to the wall. We've had Brexit and the uncertainty that that brought. We had COVID with the market being closed down. And then we've got the current cost of living crisis that we're currently sort of experiencing, which came on a sort of on the back of the war in Ukraine and also with the statement to Parliament back in the in the quarter four of last year. So we must have been really bad people in previous life. But how do you sort of how do you compare the current challenges facing the market, probably from a lender's perspective, to those from the global financial crisis of 2008? Because in my mind, they're totally different. Yes. I think if I come back to, to contrasting them in terms of the opportunities and, and threats that they, that they pose for, for non-bank lenders, uh, if I come back to that in a moment, I think I'd first contrast 2008 versus the, um, versus the mini budget uh, at the end of last year and, and say they were very similar in some ways. They were similar in the sense that uh, they came about as a result of unknown or undocumented uh, large amounts of leverage in sectors within the global financial services structure that people were not aware of. But it was very similar in one regard, which is there was a period, and it lasted for about two or three months at the end of last year, where loads and loads of pension funds and ABS funds had to sell off very large quantities of asset-backed securities. These are the mortgage bonds that we create when we securitize. So similar in a number of regards, but not quite as far-ranging or indeed quite as long-lasting. Where there is really good news, though, um, is that the market this time, this faceless collection of, of other investors, were able to purchase all of those bonds being sold. So if you look in 2008, the, region, the reason such a global crisis erupted was that there was no third party capable of buying the bonds that had to be sold as part of that dislocation. The central banks had to step in. They massively ballooned their balance sheets. At the end of last year, other financial services businesses, other investors, other banks were able to buy those bonds, which is a, which is a really strong vote of confidence, frankly, to the orderly functioning of the market. What is extremely helpful from my perspective and gives me a high degree of confidence about the robustness of the non-bank lending model was to see the market solving its own problem without having to revert to the um, to the government, to the uh, to the central banks to solve it. Now, that might be slightly at odds with hearing that the Bank of England had to had to uh, step in and offer a facility. They did that really to bring price stability. The total quantum of what they bought, I don't think, was material relative to the rest of the sell-down that happened in the market. So, brief summary, very similar to 2008 in the sense that there was a corner of the market that wasn't really well understood by the regulators. Um, when the crisis erupted, uh, in this case, the market was able to solve it. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a really strong development for our, for our business model. You've already started talking about this, and, and I just think the listeners really, really are interested in this. There are so many different funding models available. Even I get confused about the various funding mechanisms that can be. For example, there are banks, sort of high street banks, um, lenders owned or funded by banks. And then there are true non-bank lenders, which Pepper probably fall into that bracket. Could you explain these just quite simply for me, how these different funding models apply to those different banks or lenders? Well, then I'll add one more. I think in the context of the, the non-bank funding space, you have lenders that are focused on building their own balance sheets, 
i.e. retaining the loans that they originate, versus lenders that sell them all um, into flow programs or whole loan trades where, in essence, they don't hold very much of, of the lending on their own balance sheets over time. But I'll come back to that in a moment. If I was to contrast very simply sort of retail banks versus non-banks, retail banks are obviously those organizations who are uh, regulated by the, by the PRA. They have received a banking license and they're entitled on, on, the, on the basis of that, subject to, to PRA oversight. Uh, they're entitled to raise deposits from third parties. And typically those deposits, as we all know, are protected uh, by, the, by the government um, to, the, to the level of about 85,000 uh, pounds per deposit. So if I contrast that to non-banks, uh, non-banks aren't entitled to take deposits from customers. So we represent a fundamentally different risk profile to, to the average UK you know, individual and indeed to the UK regulator. As a result, we're able to hold far less capital. Uh, we're, al we're allowed to operate with about half the capital, maybe slightly less, uh, that a bank-funded model would have, to, would have to hold. The difference is, is that our funding um, is essentially gained through third-party um, transactions. And we essentially turn what is a portfolio of very operationally intensive mortgages into five or six very simple bonds that they can own and trade quite easily. Uh, we take the proceeds of selling those bonds and use that to repay, uh, to repay the overdraft I've just described. And in doing so, we typically uh, get the benefit of a lower rate of interest. Uh, the bonds that we issue certainly attract a lower rate of interest than the overdrafts that we use. And uh, that's how we make our money. So we will be lending our money out to customers who need it at a particular rate. Um, and then we will look to finance ourselves through those two funding uh, solutions uh, at, a, at a cheaper level than that. And that's how we make our profit. So you can see we represent a significantly lower risk profile than a typical retail bank. It also enables us um, to take a bit more risk than retail banks. So when you, when you look at the specialist lender space, it's typically dominated by non-banks. Not always. There are some banks with a really healthy risk appetite and a, and a very large capital support base. Uh, but typically, it's the non-banks who have higher risk appetites because, frankly, we're not subject to the same restrictions that the PRA and the FCA would apply uh, on the basis of seeking to, prevent, uh, to protect uh, retail depositors. So very simply, big overdraft. We empty it, we pay off the overdraft, and we go again. Correct. Very simply. And I, and I think knowing a little bit, as I do on the inside, our overdraft is in really good shape at the minute. Correct. I think the stability we're starting to see in the European and economic markets is giving the securitization market a bit of shot in the arm. And I think there was a restacked um, sale got away at the end of January, which is good. So hopefully we agree that they are positive signs of investor demand for mortgage-backed assets. Um, but what does this mean for the customer who, who may well need the help of a specialist lending? Does it mean that all of a sudden we're going to see rates starting to reduce, criteria might be relaxed, and, and we're away again? Or do you think it's going to be a steady rebuild? Well, that's a big question. If we start, if we imagine this in a timeline for the moment, the first and most significant thing that is impacting customer rates is a view on swap rates. And that's very much driven by uh, the the investors, in, you know, the faceless investors, this global investor base. It's very much driven by their view as to what's happening with UK interest rates. Um, and that's driven in large part by the economy. So we've seen rates rising, actual rates that, you know, are being the Bank of England base rate. We've seen that rising and, you know, that's well covered in the press. 
but in the in the last half of last year, we also saw a very steep rise in medium and long-term interest rates, i.e. the investors' expectations of where those rates might go to. And that has a massive impact. In fact, it's the most significant driver of mortgage pricing for two- and five-year products. Those reference rates are what all lenders use yeah. in order to, to set the prices on their, on their customers' mortgages in terms of new mortgages. What we have seen over the last two or three months, and most, most notably in the last month, is those expectations of rates have started to moderate. And the driver behind that is really simple economics, which is you know, the moment that everyone is of the view that inflation is starting to come under control, then they start to reduce the expectation of further rises. And then what's to st- what starts to take over is the question of how the UK is likely to grow as a, from a GDP perspective over the next two to five years. And there, the expectation for GDP growth is pretty anemic if we look at the most recent st- stats that are out there. But I think what's, what's clear and what's starting to be priced into, the, into, these, uh, into these forward rates is a sense that uh, the central bank will have to reduce rates to help spur growth in the UK. So that, I think, in the medium term, I think will drive rates on new mortgages down relative to where they were two or three months ago. So that's the single biggest driver. When it comes to specialist customers and the rates that we are charging them, in periods of really heightened uncertainty uh, as to where capital market execution might be, rational non-banks will raise their rates in order to address that. If you don't know exactly that refinancing that, that, you, that you so eloquently described a few minutes ago, if you don't know exactly where that's going to execute, you tend to raise your, uh, your rates to deal with that uncertainty. Yeah. I think what's really helpful uh, since we've come back from Christmas is that all of the metrics are pointing in the right direction now with respect to an improving view of the UK generally. It's not to say that you know, it's all you know, perfectly, perfectly growing out there and everything's green, but you can start to see the bottom, as it were. And, um, and I think that will bring us, that will give lenders like us and others greater certainty on our long-term cost of funds, and we will pass that back into our, into our customer base with respect to new, new lending rates, as we, as we always have done. I think we're just starting to start to see signs of the mainstream guys starting to pipeline build. We got five-year money under 4% only this week. So I think pipeline building might be now February, March, and April. Now, do you also think, if you combine that pipeline building on the mainstream with the results from our um, adverse credit study which we issued in December uh, in, in association with YouGov where a startling figure was that 7.91 million adults in the UK could now be classed of having some form of adverse credit which is 1.6 million up on the previous survey only 12 months ago. So do you think the fact that people wanting to sort of move and, and remortgage through the high street, I think their credit scoring might be a little bit tighter. And the adverse credit study results, do you think that will all lead to more opportunities in the specialist space? I think so, which is I think there is a really strong demand-led uh, option or opportunity for, for non-bank, for specialist players, bank and non-bank, uh, as we move through this environment. The reality for us in our first and our second charge business is that you know, we are good at really assessing customer circumstances. We're good at understanding the real estate against which we lend. Um, and our objective is to help our customers. Indeed, I was talking to someone just as I came into this, uh, to this booth today around their circumstances and how uh, making use of a specialist mortgage loan on their way to redeeming their, their credit or, or in, enhancing their credit scores, et cetera, 
uh, is exactly what we're here to do. Our job is to help customers uh, who have been through a difficult time, but who are now sort of, you know, who who have addressed that in essence. You know, our job is to help them further um, improve their credit score such that when they conclude their their fixed rate period with us, that they are in a position to move back to the high street. Totally. I, I talk about people not being specialist lenders for 25 years. Specialist borrowers for 25 years can be two or five years. Right. Keep their part of the bargain, make the payments, keep the credit file, and they're back on the high street. But but I also think you talk about seconds there, and the seconds I can see is an area that's going to grow significantly. I mean, just picture the scene. You've still got a lot of people on very, very skinny five-year fixed rates that begin with a one. They still might have four years left on that. They've now got a blip on the credit file. They want to borrow 20,000. They're not going to move all of that rate onto a specialist rate. And I think seconds is something that we, we will see we'll see it grow. And, and of course, seconds is, is very much in the pepper stable now. I mean, do, do you agree? or do you, Yeah, do you... absolutely. And I think, um, you know, certainly as as the market leading seconds player in the UK, I would I would go further and say, you know, we do support customers there from an adverse credit perspective in seconds. But actually, the biggest driver for growth in the seconds from my perspective is assisting customers to order their cash flow. So picture the scene where, you know, through no fault of, of your own, you've you know, you've you've taken on a series of credit cards. You might have a car loan that's relatively expensive, um, and then something else happens. The boiler breaks down. Some other unforeseen expense happens that you can only fund through expensive short-term credit. Where the second charge loan has real application in through the lens of a of a cost of living crisis, is that we're able to take uh, what are relatively cash expensive monthly payments and reschedule them over a longer period at a lower rate of interest that helps you bring normality to your current cash flows. There is real utility in that product. It doesn't speak to a customer who's being reckless. It doesn't indeed in these cases speak to a customer who who needs help from an adverse credit perspective. This is just simply from time to time in life, we will incur costs that we don't see coming towards us. Uh, And the second charge loan really can help bring some near-term cash flow benefit to you and again, the, the the path for exit of that loan from our perspective is not that you remain a second charge customer for 20 years. I'd love it if you did, uh, but that's not our expectation. Our expectation is that when you do refinance your first mortgage, as is typically the process here in the UK, the opportunity will be to combine those two loans. Uh, again, most likely through a high street uh, a high street lender. Who are our biggest competitors? Do, do you think, I always look at and always have through the specialist career I've had, thinking if the mainstream ever want to do this seriously, they could sort of wipe us out. Do, do you see more mainstream lenders dipping the toe into the specialist space? The, uh, you know, in, in, over the course of my career, uh, the sort of financial services is littered with, uh, with mainstream lenders seeking to execute in, in the specialist space and getting it wrong. Uh, there's always a challenge with respect to, to mainstream uh, lenders doing this. One is scale. Um, you know, the specialist market is of a particular scale. You know, we're one of the largest players, uh, and our origination run rates are of sort of two billion pounds a year. Um, you know, as we as we entered into this crisis, so it gives you a sense of of you know of the size of our business, and we're probably second or third largest player in this market. Um, so there's always a scale question. So so I don't necessarily see some of the very large high streets entering the space because I'm not sure that it stacks up for them with respect to the scale of the opportunity, um, especially if you're doing it in a considered and and well risk managed way, which of, of course they would want to. So we're still facing challenging times. And I think I picked up in what you said there that you do expect to see arrears maybe ticking up, property prices maybe falling, but 
maybe not collapsing, maybe a correction, but we do think that arrears may tick up. What What's your advice there for brokers working with customers to sort of make sure that people don't bury their head in the sand? As a responsible organisation, we have a very large-scale arrears support and forbearance support capability. So the first thing I would say is to any of our customers, indeed if, even if the brokers are still in contact with them regularly, is to make contact with us. Uh, we are focused on understanding your circumstances and coming up with a solution um, that addresses your needs. You know, our objective here, very simply, is not to simply force you to carry on making that payment. Uh, if we can see evidence that uh, that you need some short-term support, we will give it to you. So please do come and talk to us. Uh, that said, what I would say to any customers listening is, it is a challenging time out there, and there will be a number of, of lenders and, and others who, who may be calling you when you are struggling. Get in touch with us as soon as you can. Uh, we are able, as your primary uh, residence uh, lender, uh, we can help make a difference, and we can help give you a degree of certainty and comfort uh, around how we behave in environments like this. And because we've always lent money to people who have had specialist needs, we're uniquely well-placed to deal with that. Uh, so make contact with us, please. When it comes to the brokers, I think uh, clearly we're going to see an increasing population of people who fall to be specialist. I think that will be a major area of growth for brokers uh, in the near term. Um, and indeed, if you are sat with a customer today who has been you know, a high street borrower their whole lives, uh, but has, has had a blip as a result of the current environment, think about us. You know, We've got a highly graduated range of, of products that are live out there. Uh, we deal with customers who have very light historical uh, credit issues, and that's reflected in our in our rates for that end of our range, right through to customers who who quite recently have had significant issues. Um, so give us a try with respect to the range of products that we offer. Uh, they are really designed to deal with the full spectrum of customer needs, uh, as regards in this particular discussion, uh, adverse credit. I mean, Lawrence makes a really good point there. He refers to blips. It's something I use all the time. Brokers, lenders like us can help you turn those blips into dips. So there's lots of things that have no doubt been keeping you awake at night for the last few months. So I want to get to know how you switch off away from work, where, of course, you're responsible for it. Last count, I looked at 389 staff. So looking at back at your South African roots, answer me a few quick fire questions without thinking too much about the answer. Drinks, castle lager or pinotage? Pinotage. Okay. Food, babuti or braai? Braai. A braai. Sport, rugby or cricket? Rugby. Rugby? You surprised me. I thought it'd be cricket. Rugby and, and women's cricket. And women's cricket. So right now, South Africa is hosting the, the women's I've T20. Seen. And uh, they played New Zealand last night and absolutely walloped them. Favourite band? I believe you like music. I would probably say U2. U2. Of, okay. a, of a period. And then slightly more current would be Foles. Lawrence, thanks so much for taking time out of your packed schedule to talk to me today. It's been great to get to know a little bit more about you. And it's so enlightening to hear you bring to life really complex situations in such an easy to understand way. We've been through tough times recently. And whilst we're far from out of the woods, it's great to hear that more positive days presenting many more opportunities in the specialist space could be just around the corner. Thanks again, Lawrence. And I'll let you go away now to enjoy a glass of pinotage while stoking up the braai and watching a good game of rugby. Thanks indeed. Of course, a big thank you also goes out to you, our listeners. This has been The Specialist, episode one of the series brought to you by Pepper Money. If you love the content, then let us know on our social using our hashtag, hashtag Pepper Specialist Podcast and hit follow to get notified when our next episode releases. Music.